Our scripture reading today is from John 6, 52 and 53, 60 through 69. This is found on page 892 in your pew Bible. And if you don't uh, own one, we'd love for you to take that home as a gift from us. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning uh, who those were who did not believe and, it was, and who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kay, for reading God's Word for us. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here this morning, and we're really glad that you are with us here at Christ Community. Well, I wanted to begin this morning by asking a question, and that's simply, do you have someone in your life who has permission to offend you? Who can offend you when uh, they speak to you? Because one of the marks of, of a true friendship with someone is that they get to a place where they can tell you things that you don't want to hear. Right? Like that's, you know that's when you're, you are truly friends with someone, is when, they, when you're at a place in that relationship where they can tell you things that you don't want to hear. Now, you know, that could be true in a relationship with a spouse or uh, with coworkers or um, students uh, in, in your class. But you've got, you know you've gotten to that place of real relationship with someone when they are willing to risk and you are willing to receive the other person saying hard things to you. Uh, things like, you know, what you said earlier, that really hurt my feelings. Or something as simple as, you know what, I think you need to brush your teeth. <laughs> or, you know, you have this habit of finishing other people's sentences. Or maybe it's something heavier, like maybe, you know, I, I think... I think you drink too much. Or, you know, in the spirit of Seinfeld, maybe to tell someone, you know, you're kind of a close talker or you're a little bit of a low talker, whatever it might be, right? To be able to tell something, uh, someone a hard truth that, that you know is going to hurt their feelings, that, that, someone, that you have people in your life who are willing to speak those kinds of things to you. Do you have those kinds of people? Because strangers typically don't say stuff like that. Even acquaintances don't. But it's the people who actually care about you friends, parents, spouses, a good boss, a dedicated colleague who is willing to do that, who are willing to tell you. Do you have those people in your life, people who can tell you things you don't want to hear, who will risk possibly hurting your feelings, offending you, not, not because they don't love you, but precisely because they do love you and care for you? 
I want to suggest that you can't live a full and flourishing human life without those kinds of people in your life. Willing to say hard things to you, things that may offend you. So simply, is Jesus one of those people for you this morning? Is Jesus a person who can tell you things you don't want to hear? Things that might offend you, might challenge you. And whether or not you're a follower of Jesus or not, his words often challenge and even offend us. And yet his words are still life and truth. Jesus offers us to himself in his words, in the sign of his words. And in this series in the Gospel of John, we're looking at these signs that Jesus offers us that are clues to his identity of who he is. In the very beginning of the Gospel of John, he introduces himself to us. John does, tells us Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. Jesus identifies himself with his Words, words that don't simply con- convey truth or life, but, but in fact are in themselves truth and life because they come from Jesus who is truth and life. So where else will we go? And, and if you're here today as a follower of Jesus, hear these words as, as marks of a disciple, that following Jesus will often be hard, that there will be times when he will say things that offend you, when he will ask things of you that feel costly, and, you know, I, I feel this regularly because I, as a person, let me just tell you, Bill Gorman is a person who likes to be liked, uh, who, who wants to have the knowledge that people think well of him, doesn't like the idea that something that I will say or have done is going to communicate any kind of hurt or dissatisfaction or frustration from others. And yet increasingly I find myself, as I follow Jesus, in places where that's the case. But those who pledge their allegiance to Christ and his kingdom endure the cost and hold fast to their confessions even when others walk away. And maybe you're here this morning and you're unsure about Jesus, or actually maybe you've come, you're here with, you know, your mom or dad brought you, or you're here with friends, and you're actually pretty sure you, you are very sure that Jesus is not for you. So you might be in a place where you're considering, others you might be in a place, I, I, I am pretty confident, Bill, that Jesus is not for me this morning. But even those, I just want you to know that if that's you, you're not alone. That that even those who follow Jesus regularly find it difficult to do so, and even find things that he says or does offensive. We see that in our passage this morning. So the question, though, is does he have life? That's the question for all of us this morning. Again, whether you're in that place of having followed Jesus for many years, whether you're in a place of deep questioning about who Jesus is, or even a settled place of, I don't think Jesus is for me, the question is, does he have life? We have to keep that in question in mind as we walk through this passage where John makes it clear that Jesus will offend us. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, um, to turn to John chapter 6. So you can grab one of the pew Bibles uh, and turn to the the page number um, 851. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, turn to John chapter 6 there. Also, if you have a phone with you uh, that has a web browser, you can just type in John and then the number 6, and you will find... Uh, any number of websites that have these texts posted in the Bible, and you can, can read that way. But I'd love for you to follow along, see these verses as we walk through. 
And the first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus will offend you. Like a good friend who will tell us the truth, even when we don't want to hear it, Jesus will say things, do things, ask things of us that will cause offense. And, and you see this in verse 60 as Jesus is talking to the crowds. And I want to read this verse again for us, verse 60. But notice as we look at this verse that John uses the language of disciple to describe those who are offended by Jesus. And so it's really key to notice. It is disciples who are, defended, are offended by Jesus. In John's gospel, he uses a number of different words to describe the people who surround Jesus. So sometimes he'll talk about the crowds of people who are with Jesus. And the crowd is this kind of broad group of people who are just interested in in Jesus. They're attracted to his miracles or they want to learn. They're, They're intrigued by his teaching. There's also the religious leaders that are want to see Jesus put to death. They're anti-Jesus. But then there's also the disciples. Now, in some places, in particular the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes the disciples refer to that smaller group of 12 apostles. And sometimes we, we kind of equate the idea of disciples and apostles as like the same thing. And sometimes the Gospels talk about that smaller group of 12 as the disciples. But John in particular acknowledges, as do, as do the other gospel writers, that there's a broader, a much broader people, a group of people following Jesus who are his disciples, who are his learners. So Jesus is in this kind of mode of being a Jewish rabbi, and he has apprentices or disciples who are learning his way. And that's a much bigger group than just the 12 apostles. Okay, so why am I making such a big deal about this? John is going to tell us here that it's disciples who are offended by Jesus. This isn't just random people in the crowd. This isn't the religious leaders who hate Jesus. This is people who have committed to following him. So look at this in verse 60. Therefore, when, and and then notice he says, many. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, meaning his teaching about eating his body and drinking his blood, and, and this, you know, that Jesus has just been saying, this metaphor he's been using. They said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Does this offend you? And the same kind of thing happens today, doesn't it? That we are intrigued by Jesus, maybe even amazed by Jesus, but when he calls us to follow him, when he calls us to, to use our money in a certain kind of way, to conform our lives to certain patterns, to, to love our enemies, or even to harder to love those who sometimes feel like enemies, like our spouses or our parents or our kids or our brothers or sisters in the church family, that we're offended. And offended, we say that this is, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And again, their response is to grumble, which is not a good sign. As you look at this part of, of the Gospel of John, it's clear that John is modeling how he's telling this story, the kind of vocabulary and patterning that he's using on the Exodus account, right? So you can see a lot of parallels between the Exodus moment, which is when Moses leads God's people, the Israelites, out of enslavement into Egypt and into the wilderness. And you see this in John chapter 6, that, that Moses and Jesus are kind of being held together as a comparison, that John wants us to see that Jesus is the true and better Moses. So Moses leads God's people out of Egypt. They pass miraculously through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness, and then they're miraculously fed by manna, this sky bread that comes down. 
Here in John chapter 6, Jesus has miraculously fed 10, 15,000 people. And then he, we saw last week, walks across the Sea of Galilee in this miraculous kind of way. And both in Exodus and now here in John, even after the people have witnessed these incredible miraculous happenings, they start to grumble. To grumble. And remember, John describes these people who are grumbling as disciples. These are not angry religious leaders who have been against Jesus from the beginning. These are people who wanted, in some cases, the very ones who wanted to make Jesus king by force just a few moments ago. In other words, these are people who go to church, who like Jesus, who identify as students of Jesus, and they are offended by him. Jesus' teaching seems strange and difficult to them. I mean, these are all the things he, he talks about in John chapter 6, that he's sent from God. He calls God his father. Jesus puts himself above Moses and, and how we are to eat and drink his body and blood. And all of that is what caused many disciples to walk away from. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, those things in John chapter 6 certainly might be challenges to your following of Jesus, but maybe there are other things in our contemporary moment that you actually find as bigger obstacles or challenges to your faith. So I just think it's one question for us to wrestle with this morning. Where is Jesus challenging you? Because here's the reality. If Jesus isn't challenging you, you probably aren't following the real Jesus. If Jesus is not following you, you're probably not following the real Jesus. Either, either you're, you're following Jesus that has sort of been remade into your own image, or you don't actually know the real Jesus all that well. You're not actually making that big of an effort to understand him. Because it is so easy for us to make Jesus in our image rather than letting him remake us into his image. And when we make Jesus in our own image, we no longer have a savior or a friend or God. We end up with a mirror of of someone who looks and sounds and believes and disbelieves and likes and dislikes and loves and hates all the exact same things that that we do. And I don't just mean that for those people out there somewhere. I mean that for those of us in this room, that we often, because it's who we are <laughs> as humans, that we so easily remake God and Jesus into our image rather than the other way around. But Jesus wants to challenge you today. He is challenging you. He's challenging me today. And in fact, until we reach a place of wholeness, of completeness, of being conformed to the image of Christ, he will continue to challenge us. And that's why I know that he is challenging everyone in this room, because none of us have yet reached that place of wholeness, of completeness, of of the fullness of the work that God wants to do to make us into people who love God and our neighbor with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Until that work is complete, Jesus will challenge you. Right? There's something wrong. Think about it this like a doctor. It, there's something wrong if we go to the doctor and we won't listen to the doctor. Right? If you walk in and the doctor does their kind of their exam, they always do, you know, they weigh you, they do your blood pressure, and they come in and the doctor says, I just looked at your blood pressure, and your blood pressure is really high. And this is in danger, you know, in, in the short term, definitely in the long term, of this will kill you. And if we just respond, you know, that's cool. But a lot, you know what? A lot of other people have high pressure, blood pressure too. And, you know, you can't tell me what to do. 
Like, there's something wrong if we won't listen to our doctor. There's also something wrong if our doctor will never tell us anything we don't want to hear, right? If you walk into the doctor's office and you're like, I, I'm experiencing pain here, or I'm, I, I'm, I'm tired and, and depressed all the time, and they just kind of look at your numbers and they see some stuff that maybe looks off, but they're like, you know what, just keep up the good work, you're doing fine, just keep going. Like, that's not great either. And a Jesus who can't or doesn't challenge us is, is essentially is a post-Christian Jesus who has just become another religious advice giver but is not actually the God of the universe. I love what Pastor John Mark Comer writes in his outstanding book, Live No Lives. Uh, he says this. He says, post-Christian culture is an attempt to move beyond the Christian vision while still retaining much of its scaffolding. It's a reaction against Christianity. He says it's the West's rebellious teenager moment. We are the stereotypical adolescent kicking against our parents' authority and railing against all their flaws while still living in their house and eating all of their food. Uh, Australian pastor Mark Sayers puts it this way. He says, we want the kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom without the king. What both John Mark Homer and Mark Sayers are getting at here is that in the West, we have established a, a, a framework of, of human rights, of the value and dignity of the individual, all these things which are not just sort of foregone conclusions in the history of the world, but are deeply rooted in, in a biblical understanding of the image of God. And, and, and in the West, we've wanted to move beyond Jesus, the king, but retain a framework of, of human rights and dignity of the individual and the person that has come from that. We want, essentially, we're, we're sawing off the very log that we are sitting on. Jesus will offend you. That's the first thing that we see here. He will offend us. The, the kinds of, and I wanted to be clear, the kinds of people in this room, it's not that Jesus offends elites that are on the east or the west coast somewhere, Jesus offends, you know, good old kind Midwestern folk like you and me in this room this morning. If he doesn't, then we haven't encountered the real Jesus yet. And, and here's the deal. That offense that Jesus causes will tempt you to walk away. If you follow Jesus long enough and seriously enough, if you say, I really want to understand what he requires of me, and I actually want to not just listen to him, but I actually want to do what he says. I want to, as Jesus says, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I, I want to build, I want to hear, I want to be hearer and doer. I want to hear Jesus' words. I want to put them into practice. I want to build my life on the foundation of Jesus rather than on the shifting sand that will fall away. If you are serious enough about that, you will find that there are times when Jesus offends you and that there will be times, therefore, as a result, that you will want to walk away. And this is what happens in verse 66. They hear Jesus' response to their offense and grumbling, and they turn away from him. And again, I know I've keep, you know, I keep emphasizing this, but notice again the language of disciples. It is disciples of Jesus in this moment who turn away from him. Verse 66. After this, many, again, John uses the language of many, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And this is a reminder that we can like Jesus a lot, 
up to a point, but then reach a point where we will want to walk away. And then in verse 67, Jesus turns to the 12. Again, so you have this language, again, this distinction between the disciples, this broader group of people, and then the 12. Jesus turns to the 12, including John, the gospel writer, who's recording these words for us, and asks, so Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And, and I think Jesus is asking this question because the 12 apostles, these 12 inner disciples of Jesus, they go in just a matter of days from seeing Jesus having miraculously fed 5,000 plus people, the people want to make him king right there on the spot, to now many disciples are walking away. And again, putting this in the, you know, putting ourselves into the, the humanness of, of these 12, Matthew and John and Andrew and Peter, like they likely had family members, friends, neighbors who were part of that group that walked away. Because this isn't just the crowd. These are people, they had come to Jesus maybe at a similar time and, and they're traveling with them. Maybe they left homes or businesses. And now some of those people, those families, those friends, those neighbors are now walking away from Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't want to go away too, do you? And maybe you've been there too. Where you have friends from college or high school, maybe even someone who first introduced you to Jesus who has walked away for whatever reason. Maybe you have a parent. Maybe you're a parent in this room and you have a child who's walked away. Those moments are hard when you see someone that you care, that you love deeply, maybe who was even instrumental in drawing you into the life of Christ, who's now no longer walking with him. And maybe it causes you to wonder, to doubt, to question, am I missing something? Is, is this whole thing a sham? Should I walk away too? Or maybe there's just a profound disappointment and despair. But there's a big difference between running to something and running away from something. It's like that person who says, if you ever see me running, it will only be because I'm being chased by a gang, gang of flesh-eating zombies, right? And in that moment, that person is not running toward a better vision of life that they've carefully cultivated and said, I want to go there. They're just trying to get away from something that seems like death, right? And this can so easily happen with our faith. Where something, like, even really legitimate causes us to question our faith convictions, our involvement in the church, our relationship to Jesus, but we don't carefully cultivate a sense of where I'm heading to. We just want to get away from that thing that is causing offense or hurt. And again, some of those things are really legitimate that we ought to be really concerned about. When we see scandal and abuse happening in the church, we are rightly angered and disappointed. When we see hypocrisy or compromise, it's natural to say, I want to get us far. I don't want anything to do with that. It's a right impulse, a sense of justice around that. We have to consider not just what we are moving away from in those moments, but also where, where am I going to in those moments? A theologian and apologist, Thad Williams, makes this powerful point. He says, there's really no such thing as someone losing their faith. What usually happens is that people relocate their faith 
to another object. Maybe it's a political ideology, maybe a romance, maybe nature, maybe the voice within. These new objects of trust are rarely, if ever, put to the same scrutiny as someone's previous objects of faith. I think this line is so, so powerful in its metaphor. If they were, many would find they were not stepping from a rocking boat onto solid ground, but into a swirling sea with even less footing. Have we considered when we're tempted to walk away? Where are we going to go to? And does it actually provide the kind of life that we long for? So here's a question for us to consider here in this section, which is, what's one thing that makes you want to walk away? It's really important, again, whether you have been a follower of Jesus for a really long time, or you're just considering him, or you've just come to faith in Christ, to acknowledge that there are going to be things that will make us want to walk away. But have we actually identified those? And, and maybe there's more than one for you, but what, what's one thing that you find, this, you know, this is, this is something that makes me want to walk away from Jesus. And why it's so important that we identify those things and actually wrestle with them, raise those questions. Because here's the thing, being a Christian, doubt is not antithetical to being a Christian. In fact, Frederick Buechner, a writer of uh, a generation ago, said, doubt is like ants in the pants of faith. It keeps it moving. Doubt is not antithetical to faith. But when we do not address our doubts, when we don't acknowledge them, we don't name them, we don't wrestle with them, they can actually slowly erode from the inside, either leading us to sort of this obligatory faith we're just going through the motions externally, but inside we harbor these deep questions. So there's this disconnect. Or it's sort of an embittered faith where we have these deep questions, where we're angry with God, we're frustrated about, with God, but we kind of, again, continue to go through the motions. Neither of these are, are healthy. And one great way to, to do this, to sort of name and identify the doubts that we have, is actually to read books written by thoughtful questions that raise and consider questions that, are, that we have and that our culture has around Christian faith. Uh, one of the greatest uh, resources out there today for that is Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity. Rebecca's incredibly thoughtful. Um, she's out of the UK, and she has written this book, Confronting Christianity, and in that, she just addresses the subtitle as 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. In that book, she looks at questions like, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Doesn't religion cause violence? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? And many more. If those are questions that you've ever asked, and they're certainly questions I've asked, pick up a book like Rebecca's and, and wrestle through those, how she's responding to those. Sometimes we read those kinds of works because we have questions, but it's also helpful to be able to give thoughtful responses to others, or even at least to know something good to point out. You know, I don't know if I can give a good response to that question, but I read this, this really helpful book. If you're wrestling with this, you might consider it as well. Okay, here's another deal, though. Those are kind of intellectual or cultural objections to Christianity. And those things will definitely cause challenge to your faith, definitely cause you either to hesitate about becoming a Christian or maybe at times being tempted to walk away, drawn away. 
So that's one category, intellectual, cultural objections. But here's another category, which I think is often even more powerful in our temptation to walk away from Jesus. And that is deep personal disappointment with God. Frustrations, hurts, unanswered prayers. Where you've walked through something in your life where you said, I have prayed for months, for years. And God seems totally silent. Or you walk through some incredibly hard thing in your life and I don't, you just say, I, God, I do not know how a good God could allow this to happen in my life or to someone that I love. And those kinds of questions are often much more powerful in inducing a temptation to walk away from Jesus than any of the cultural or intellectual challenges that are very real. And listen, I felt that too, because, well, certainly pastors are not immune from the intellectual and cultural challenges to Christianity. But let me tell you, personal disappointments and pain around this work as a pastor abound. And you're often up close with people who are deeply hurting. And you sit with someone, and you pray, and you grieve, and you cry together, and you leave that space, and you wonder, God, how can you allow these things to happen? I'm just saying, oftentimes the most challenging moments to our faith are not intellectual or cultural issues, but are deep disappointments, frustration, pain, and suffering. So I don't know what that one thing is for you this morning. I just want to say, don't give up on Jesus without wrestling. Don't run away from him without carefully considering where would you run to? Honestly wrestle with the question, where will you go? And that's the, the final movement we want to look at this morning, is where will you go? Uh, Jesus, again, he asks the 12 in verse 67, are you going to leave too? And Peter's response has been a bedrock for me in verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else will we go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. And I just want to tell you, friends, when there have been moments where I've questioned, had doubts, concerns, pain, suffering in my own story, that verse, John 6, 68, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, has been the foundation for me. In fact, one moment I remember vividly in between, uh, was right before the final semester of my senior year of college, and all through college, I had idolized this relationship with someone, built kind of the, I had this vision of the future with this person. And that relationship utterly fell apart, and I was devastated. And I remember being in a room by myself, and I remember my face, like, and I kind of still feel it, pressed into the carpet, just being utterly devastated, totally confused. This is not how I had planned for this segment of the future of my life to go. I was so deeply questioning God. And these words came to mind. To whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Maybe I don't understand, but I have you. And here's the thing. As a pastor, 
I've sat with so many people who ask the why question, and it's natural. We want to ask the why. Why would God allow this to happen? And the reality is, so many times in moments of suffering, we will never know why. And I also think we tend to overestimate how satisfying or helpful knowing the why would actually be. But what we have as Christians is a, we inhabit a story that gives meaning to suffering, even if we don't always know the why of suffering. That our suffering is not meaningless because it is attached to the story of Jesus who himself has suffered and died and risen again. So I don't know the reasons. I can't give you a why answer for suffering in your own story. And sometimes we think, oh, when I get to heaven, God will show Maybe you'll know, get to heaven and we'll never know. God does not promise, even in the new heavens and the new earth, that we will have every one of our why questions answered. But we do have a story that provides meaning. That means our suffering and our pain is not meaningless. And that we are not alone in it, but that God has stepped into the midst of us. Where else will you find life and truth? This is the question. And sometimes it's, it's easier in moments of feeling like in, of deconstruction and wrestling with intellectual and cultural issues to, to have all these questions about God and, and to challenge. But Regina Spector, who's a singer, she's a songwriter, she has this really powerful and poignant song called No One Laughs at God. And she sings these words. She says, no one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when the doctor calls after some routine test. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid's not back from the party yet. No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else and they hope that they are mistaken. No one laughs at God when the cops knock on the door and they say, we've got some bad news, sir. No one's laughing at God when there's famine, fire, or flood. And here's the thing. The moments that she describes in that song are moments that we will face in our lives, in our stories. And the question is, in those moments, where will you go to hear words of eternal life? Where will you go? And the question is, will we keep going with Jesus when others walk away? And here's what I've come to after 30 years of following Jesus and nearly 15 years of those being a pastor, is that Jesus is not unassailable, but he is unsurpassable. Let's say that again. Jesus is not unassailable, but he is unsurpassable. What do I mean by that? Unassailability has, means that, that to be unassailable means that you can't be doubted, attacked, or questioned. And we know that's not true of Jesus. He is regularly, even in the gospel, he's doubted, attacked, and questioned. He's not unassailable. But he is unsurpassable in his goodness, in his glory, in his love, in his sacrifice, in his care for us. Jesus has been assailed for 2,000 years. But you know what? Over 2 billion people around the world today have found Jesus to be unsurpassable in his goodness and his love for them. Uh, they have found in him the words of eternal life, and they come from vastly different cultures and languages and classes and countries, and yet they have all said, this one, 
alone has the words of eternal life. So friends, there may be a multitude, there is a multitude of reasons that Jesus offends us, resulting in us wanting at times to walk away from him. But when we know and believe the power and love of the Holy One who promises not to walk away from us, it's only natural to respond, as Peter did, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's how our sister Mona couldn't help but respond either. Take a look. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I grew up in Muslim family. Um, many people in Iran are Muslim, but the thing is um, we are Muslim traditionally. So we know God. We know God as a creator. And the one has all the power and uh, can do anything for us. I came here back in, uh, again, 2006, and I hired a lady. Uh, she is same age as me, and she came around that time. When we were at work, um, many times we would share our story about our past, and she was always talking about Jesus and uh, telling me about her story, how she loved Jesus, how Jesus has been working in her life. And then I, I always was telling her about God, that God is our creator, and then we always like to pray to God. Back in 2018, um, my dad got sick. He didn't want to eat, he didn't want to talk, he, didn't, he couldn't sleep. It was to the point that they were asking me to go back in Iran, go to visit because uh, we might have to put it in a special care or something like that. So I was so sad and worried. Uh, so my friend Annie, she told me, you know, that Jesus was a healer. We knew Jesus as a prophet. So she told me, uh, Mona, I, I always ask Jesus, and he answered me, let's pray and ask Jesus, are you okay with that? And I gave okay to her. I said, yes, I can do it. I really want to do anything for my dad that I could. So that's why I start and uh, pray morning, night, every time. And then I was just middle of night, woke up, and then I was saying, uh, Jesus, I don't know you, but my friend Annie uh, say that you are a healer uh, and you can do anything. So I'm asking you, please heal my dad. It didn't take even a month. I saw him that he is getting better. Uh, he started talking more comfortable. He started eating. He started sleeping. And then this miracle made me to want to know Jesus more. When I started reading Bible, I decided to read the New Testament because we knew about Old Testament. So every night I was reading a couple of pages. As I read, it was questioned for me that who is God and who is Jesus? Because I was always thinking God is a God that can do anything. So now who is Jesus? And when I was asking my friend, um, she was answering me, you know, they are all one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I didn't understand that moment. One of my favorite books is Book of John because it talks for really 
uh, simple and straight. Even his disciple is saying, uh, teacher, you are talking to us now very clear. When I saw the first chapter and it said um, uh, about the word become flesh, that moment, it was the moment that I understand that it was God himself. He came to this world for us. It was just like clear to me, he is God. Jesus is God. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, that's the truth that we cling to, and Mona is a member of our Olathe campus um, and was so kind to share her story of coming to, to trust in Jesus as the only one who has the words of eternal life. 